Catholic Family Podcast presents Lent Around the World Daily Traditional Catholic Meditations Read by our friends from across the globe The Passion and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ by the Most Reverend Albin Goodyear Part 7 The Last Warning to Judas And yet again, for a second and a third time, he could not go on. The haunting consciousness of the one evil influence in their midst still obsessed him. Again, he grew silent. He was troubled. The unrest upon his face betrayed the struggle of his soul. Something of the kind the Twelve had seen before, notably that day in Capernaum, when his enemies had accused him of working his miracles by the aid of Beelzebub, the prince of devils, and that other day in the streets of Jerusalem, when the carping of his critics had made him cry out that he was troubled, and he had prayed to be relieved. But this occasion seemed more terrible, and at last the moment came when he would endure it no longer. Thus far he had done no more than hint at what he knew. Now the time had come when he must speak more plainly. Hitherto, for the traitor's own sake, he had uttered warnings which he alone would understand. Now, for the sake of the future, it was meet that all the rest should hear. Before he had said, You are clean, but not all. And again, He that eateth bread with me shall lift up his heel against me. Yet not even Judas had taken any heed. He would now be more explicit. He would use his solemn mode of speaking. Nevertheless, even now, the further and last warning should be given in such a way that, if he chose, the traitor should be shielded. When Jesus had said these things, when they were at table and eating, he was troubled in spirit, and he testified and said, Amen, amen, I say to you, one of you that eateth with me shall betray me. But yet, behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. The words were plain enough, and without possibility of misinterpretation. There was, he said, a traitor among them. Was such a thing possible? Which of them could it be? The twelve looked at one another. Faults they knew in each other in abundance, but none that could point to such a fault as this. What he said they could not doubt. When he spoke with such emphasis as this, they had long learnt to accept his words without further question. Nevertheless, it grieved them, it made them almost resentful to think that such a charge could be made against such a group as themselves at such a moment. In one another they could find no answer. They could suspect not one amongst them. They turned to right and left. They spoke in anxious whispers, neighbor to neighbor. But still they could come to no conclusion. They turned their eyes in upon themselves. They asked themselves, each one, whether he would be the one to be guilty of that doom. And still the dreadful mystery remained. Soon the torrent could not be stemmed. As on that famous night upon the water, they had all rushed to him with the cry, Save us, we perish. So on this night, in this sudden imminent peril of a still worse shipwreck, one by one they appealed to him that they might be saved from this greatest of disasters. And they, being very much troubled, began to be sorrowful and to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. 
and to say to him one by one, Is it I, Lord? Jesus waited for the clamor to die down. Then he gave his answer. Enough, abundantly enough for him to understand whom it most concerned, but for the rest still an enigma. He would dwell upon only two things, the utter shame of the act of treachery and the terrible doom that awaited the traitor if his design were carried out. That it should be done by one of his own chosen twelve, by one of the chosen companions at this table of all others, that if the deed were done it would entail a retribution he would not venture to describe. But he, answering, said, One of the twelve who dippeth with me his hand in the dish. Then the Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man shall be betrayed. It were better for him if that man had not been born. His answer thus left them still in ignorance. He had dwelt only on the enormity of the crime about to be committed. He had not pointed out the criminal. But there was one of the group in particular who felt the sting of what was said. One of you, one of the twelve. The words almost implied a charge against them all, and was not Simon Peter their head? In some sense he felt himself responsible. To make such a charge against anyone amongst them was to accuse them all. That one of his twelve, Simon Peter's twelve, should so turn traitor was a thought that cut him to the quick. Until he knew which it was among them, he could have no rest. Yet of himself he did not dare to ask. On other occasions he had made protests against the master's words or actions and had invariably been cut short. This very night at the washing of the feet he had resisted and had been put in his place. But there was John, John the simple and innocent of heart, John the son of thunder, the enthusiast, whose enthusiasm yet offended none, John the youth among them, who claimed unconsciously the privileges of youth and was freely given them, John in a special way loved by Jesus, and none took it amiss. John, who could claim as his own the title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John reclined next to, in front of Jesus. Leaning as he was on his right arm, he had but to throw back his head a little, and it rested on the breast of Jesus. And Jesus on his side was content at times to allow his beloved this familiar consolation. John was there at this moment. The master's troubled look and manner, the terror of the warning, the anxiety which John shared with them all, lest he himself might be the guilty man, drove him the more to this clinging of love. Peter, close beside him, looked at him. If to anyone Jesus would reveal the traitor's name, surely he would reveal it to John. Indeed, it might well be that John already knew it. Secretly, he made a sign to him. He attracted his attention. Under his breath, while the rest were still arguing among themselves, he whispered to him, Who is it of whom he speaketh? John understood. Where he leaned upon the breast of Jesus, he had but to turn his head and look upward and their eyes would meet. He turned and looked with a question in his eyes, and the glance from the eyes that looked down on him encouraged him to speak. With eagerness in his voice, as if the strain were becoming more than he could bear. With something, too, of familiarity, born of love, with something of a child's pleading, John asked, Lord, who is it? 
Jesus heard and answered. In his eyes, too, there was love. And that was more than love returned for his disciple John. In his face, at the same time, there was agonizing pity for this other beloved, Judas. Still would he not openly betray him. John and Peter he would trust, but the rest must not yet know. Lest anyone else should hear, he would not even pronounce the traitor's name. Perhaps, too, there was another reason he could not bring himself to utter it. A sign would suffice, especially the sign to which the psalmist had alluded. He that eateth bread with me shall lift up his heel against me. While then the talk was going busily round the table, Jesus leaned down and whispered to John, He it is to whom I shall give bread dipped. And as he spoke the words, he took a piece of bread, dipped it in the common bowl, and handed it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, which would seem to show that Judas was near to the Lord at that supper table. In itself, this was nothing strange and would not have been remarked upon by any of the group. It was a common act of courtesy, such as a host might perform to any guest. But to John and Peter, what a revelation was here. Judas, of all men, the very last, so it seemed to them, that they could ever have suspected. Judas, with fewer external faults than any other, the most self-possessed, the most prudent, the most knowing, the most trusted, of whom they themselves had often turned for counsel, whose lead they had often followed, whose silent wisdom had always given weight to every word he had uttered. Judas, to whom the poor turned when alms were distributed, to whom the master himself would turn whenever he needed anything. Judas, who often had cared for them all, and on their travels had found them food and shelter. Judas, the traitor? It was hard to believe. Yet did Judas not refuse the morsel. They watched him, self-possessed to the last, accept it from the master's fingers. Then, as if it were an afterthought, as if this special act of courtesy of Jesus called for some remark, for hitherto he had not joined in the noisy and somewhat unseemly clamor of the rest, with an ease of manner that seemed to prove an easy conscience, asking not in any anxiety, but because others asked, he looked up into the face of Jesus and said, Is it I, Rabbi? And even as he spoke it, he put into his mouth the bread the master had given to him. At once he felt a change come over him, Hitherto, with all his brave exterior, Judas had not been without some restlessness of mind. Jesus had already said enough to show him that he knew what was being planned. Would he then take measures to escape after he had done before? Or worse still, would he expose Judas before all the company? The latter was not likely. It was not the manner of Jesus to expose the evil of anyone. Judas felt that he could run that risk. Again, there was the deed itself. However justifiable he had argued it to be, Judas knew that in itself it was foul, all the more foul because in the East to eat bread with another was a guarantee of security. Whatever he had done before that was untrue, never before had he gone so far as this. Now, on a sudden, all his fears and scruples seemed to vanish. That morsel of bread gave him new life, new courage, it was a token from Jesus that he would put no hindrance in his way. Its acceptance by himself killed within him every remaining qualm. That question which in itself was a lie, that demeanor of friendship which covered utter falsehood, 
gave him over to the devil. And after the morsel, Satan entered into him. There was nothing more to be done. Judas had rejected this last token of friendship, and it only remained for him to be dismissed. While the talk was still going round, so that none but Judas and John and Peter could hear what was being said, Jesus answered the question of Judas with the simple words, Thou hast said it. Though Judas would deceive Jesus, yet would Jesus not deceive him, nor would he let him go away believing that he was himself deceived. Further, when now the conversation had grown quiet and had tone loud enough for all to hear, he added, That which thou doest, do quickly. Thus, to the very end, Jesus kept the good name of Judas safe. With that consummate skill in the use of words which had nowhere its equal, whether he spoke as one having authority or told simple stories to poor country people, with that perfect self-possession which never allowed him to retaliate, whether supercilious enemies accused him of having a devil or an ignorant rabble laughed him to scorn, with that infinite patience and sympathy which made him one alike with haughty Pharisees and with publicans and sinners, with all this, Jesus bore with Judas to the end. While he spoke nothing but the simple truth, yet were his words such as none but Judas would understand the rebuke and condemnation and dismissal they contained. Similar commands Judas had often received before and had promptly fulfilled them. Since he held the purse, Jesus and Judas had often business with each other that did not concern the rest. The festival day would be on the morrow. No doubt for that a day some extra purchases would need to be made, some extra alms to be given to the poor. Though it was already dark, the bazaars were still open, especially in view of the coming feast. That it should be needful for Judas to leave them, even at such a solemn moment, was easily understood. Now no man at the table knew to what purpose he said this unto him, for some thought, because Judas had the purse, that Jesus said to him, Buy those things we have need of for the festival day, or that he should give something to the poor. But for Judas, the die was cast. There was no need or inclination for him to wait a moment longer. Suddenly, the whole scene had become abhorrent to him. The presence of these, his former brethren, the presence of Jesus himself, had ceased to have for him any meeting at all. The company merely bored him. Their behavior lacked all sense. This talk about a kingdom, this meaningless washing of feet, this wearisome and endless ceremonial, even the worn-out ceremony of the Paschal Lamb, it was all so futile, so trivial, so contemptible, so childish, so irrational, so steeped in silly sentiment, so maudlin, so void of common respect, so obviously superstitious, so profitless, so bankrupt. It might be all very well for boorish country folk in Galilee or for emotional women in Perea, but for men of the world with their lives to live and their careers to make, men of independence and judgment who were masters of their own souls, this kind of thing was mere slavery. It was intellectual suicide. He saw it all now. It had been a mistake from the beginning. He had been a fool to let himself be drawn into the net of this enthusiast and his followers. But it was never too late to mend, and the sooner he was out of it, the better. He welcomed the command that had just been given to him. 
be its hidden meaning what it might. He had scarcely swallowed the morsel of bread which Jesus had handed to him when he went out immediately, and it was night. No sooner had Judas gone than the whole atmosphere of that supper room changed. A cloud seemed to lift from them all, but from none more than Jesus himself. He gave a sigh of relief. At last he was himself, and was able to speak as he would. His voice was no longer suppressed. His words no longer stumbled, as he almost cried out with joy. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God also will glorify him in himself, and immediately he will glorify him. Only a few days before, in the temple's court, words not unlike these had escaped him. Then, in a moment of mental trial, he had cried, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause I came unto this hour. Father, glorify my name. In answer to that cry, a voice therefore came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And in the courage which that answer had given him, he had gone on. Now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all things to myself. To which St. John had added his own significant and characteristic comment. Now this he said, signifying by what death he should die. In like manner, now once more his courage is strengthened. He is again, as it were, master of his soul in its emotions, unhampered by the discord around it, and is able to proceed as he will. For the present, he can set himself aside. Later in the evening, in a moment of utter loneliness, it will all return with still greater horror upon him, so much so that he will need an angel from heaven to strengthen him. But for the hour before him, he is free. And once free, his thoughts return to where they were at the beginning, to his own seated around him, his own whom he had loved to the end, with whom he had longed to eat the supper before he died. He looked about upon them all. His heart went out to them again. Little children, he called them, these rough men, these hard-handed Galileans. And we do not read that he had ever used so tender a name for them before. And why does he give it to them now? We see his thoughts. For he cannot, nor does he wish to hide them. It is because he is about to leave them, and though it is he that should rightly be given consolation, yet must he spend his time in consoling them. He is going away, and they will miss him. They will be lost without him. They will hunger for him. Intensest joy for him, even while also intensest agony. He must give them comfort in return. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come, so I say to you. In those words he drew their memories back to the Feast of Tabernacles six months before. On that occasion in the court of the temple, he had definitely thrown down the gauntlet to his enemies. It was the beginning of his last campaign against Jerusalem. His main work of teaching had by that time been accomplished. He had revealed the Father. He had opened the way to the kingdom. He had foretold the gift of his own body and blood. He had received the confession of Peter. 
he had sealed that confession by the vision of himself transfigured. He had invited to him all the world, for he was its way and its truth and its life. And there had remained little else for him to do but to fight his way to his throne upon the cross. But to what different hearers, and therefore in how different a sense, does he now repeat the warning? Then it was given to his enemies, now it is given to his own. Then it was uttered as a threat, now it is spoken only that he may give comfort. Then it was his reply to the ministers of the rulers and Pharisees, who had been sent expressly to apprehend him. Now it is to ministers of his own, who already possess him, and fear to let him go. Yes, he was about to leave them, and whither he went, they would not be able to come. He was about to inflict a wound, but even while he inflicted it, he must pour in oil and wine. They were about to lose him, but he would show them how and where they would find him most easily again. They would find him most easily in one another. Here he strikes another note, akin to much what we have heard before, but in its full significance something new. It is a note which, once struck, is to echo in his words throughout the rest of this memorable night. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. In the old law it had been written, Thou shalt love thy friend as thyself. In the Sermon on the Mount, the new lawgiver had gone much further and had made a new standard. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that persecute and calumniate you. And in confirmation he had added, If you love them that love you, what reward shall you have? Do not even the publicans this? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you do more? Do not also the heathen this? So strongly had he spoken, even at the beginning of his teaching. Yet here, on this last night of his life on earth, he tells his own eleven, from whom he had a right to expect more than from any other, that the love he asks of them is not love of their enemies, but merely love of one another. Nay more, this he calls a new commandment, indeed so new that its observance will mark them out from all other men as being his very own. What does he mean? In what is this commandment new? In only one respect does it differ from those that have gone before. They said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thou dost love thyself. This new law said, You shall love as I have loved you. That is something very much more, so much more that of himself man cannot hope to attain it. But before the evening is over, he will teach them how it may be attained. And his own know what he means by experience they know it, nor can they explain it to others. It is one of those things which cannot be explained, for it is beyond the language of men. Others, looking on, see it and confess it. See how these Christians love one another. That peculiar something which tells all the world who are his disciples. Yet the world, too, is unable to define it. For love does not live on words, nor by words can it be defined. Above all that love which is in him and comes from him, and which finds him and loves him in others, 
crystal and true and burning and pure, without a shadow of secrecy or doubt or fear. <laughs> 